Welcome to The Lisa Show. When you spend a significant amount of time with someone, the more likely it is that you are to step on each other's toes every now and then. Now, I may be preaching to a choir that has been quarantined with their loved ones for the last, oh, however many months it's been, but sometimes you can actually really hurt each other, especially if that other person is your spouse. So when we're married or even in just a romantic relationship, it's easy to become casual in the ways that we treat and talk to our partner. This can lead to deep feelings of hurt, the kind of hurt that makes us angry, makes us frustrated or unforgiving. But forgiveness is exactly what we need to do in this situation. So how do we forgive when the person that we love the most hurts us and they know how to hurt us the most? Mm -hmm. We've invited marriage coaches Danielle and Howard Taylor to share their four factors of forgiveness. Welcome back to the show, Danielle and Howard. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be back. Now, uh, I'm going to lean on you real quick, Howard. Have you ever said something that has upset Danielle? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of, course. Uh, of, of, of course. You know, so Danielle and I always say that if we had, if we struggled in any area of our relationship, it was communication. You know, she would be speaking French and I was be speaking Spanish and I've upset her many times with my words. Absolutely. I mean, the old saying is right. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus and we speak these different languages and it's like, no, babe, I was making a joke and you took the most offense to this thing. How, how, how do we even set a table with such differences between men and women? And I want both of your responses on this, but I'd like Danielle to go first. I think that setting the table and coming into the same page with communication is understanding the other person's perspective, but then also knowing that how you communicate is not how you feel things should be communicated, but rather how that person needs to receive it. Hmm. I don't know if that's confusing or not, but I remember Howard and I got in the argument one time and I, he, he said, I don't recall, but he said, I told him, well, I'm not going to listen until you say it in a way that I'm going to receive. So <laughs> I don't remember saying that, but that kind of brought us back to the drawing board of like, okay, how, how would you prefer to receive things? What are your perspectives? How do you feel when I say A and B? Are there any trigger words for you? You know, so getting on the same page there is what, what has helped us with our communication. And then also in our commandments, we have a few, um, rules of, of communication that we really stick by, and that's helped us a lot. Now, before you answer, Howard, I just want to mention, when she mentions commandments, we're not talking about the biggie 10. You guys have uh, established commandments within your relationship that, as part of right. your coaching, that you sort of have those rules to live by. So w- what about for you, Howard? What about this communica- communication piece for you? Yeah, what, I, what, I, what I've learned in, in, our, in our now 15-year marriage, 20-year relationship is that <clears throat> I know Howard important in marriage and relationship is how well do I know uh, Danielle. It doesn't do me any good to speak my own language uh, or, or face, have a staunch perspective of what I think respect is or what I think love is. What's important to my role in marriage is what Danielle thinks respect is, what Danielle thinks love is, how Danielle communicates. And so um, what we've done in our marriage is we, we don't spend a whole lot of time trying to uh, be understood. We spend a lot of time now trying to understand and to learn. Right. And so that's how we that's how we kind of set the table through communication, through love, through respect, um, and through many aspects of our marriages. How am I an expert in my spouse? Hmm. Not so much an expert in me. That's a pretty powerful place to come from. Uh, as I introed this discussion that we had with you, or that we're having with you guys, I mentioned that there were four factors of forgiveness. And, and I don't know if I'm the only one that has a brain that works like this, but I recognize that we haven't talked about any of those four, or we haven't identified them as, <laughs> this is number one, and my mind is sort of obsessing on, well, what are the four factors for forgiveness? <laughs> so I want to make sure that we feed that active brain. Danielle, what is that first factor of the four? The first factor is the foundation, understanding that we forgive because God forgave us. Mm. Plain and simple. (laughs) That's right. So does this have an application if people uh, don't have a particular faith tradition? Absolutely. We've all done something before to offend someone, and they have forgiven us. We needed their forgiveness at that time to move forward in the relationship, even if we didn't stay together or even if it was a platonic relationship. We've offended someone in some way all the time. Mm -hmm. And so how we have been able to move on in those friendships, relationships, professional relationships, it's how you um, 
practice forgiveness in maybe a closer relationship or a spouse or a girlfriend or whatever. Hmm. So I think looking through the lens of that, you know, unfortunately, we're not perfect. We're going to do things that hurt people and then turning around and treating people as you want to be treated um, is, is number one. Now, I would just point out, as Howard said, though, early on, as we started discussing, he is perfect. But I know you're saying sort of a blanket, <laughs> generalized, you know, we're not perfect. Howard, what's number two? Uh, forgetting. Uh, forgetting is uh, number two. And it's so it's so vital uh, because uh, oftentimes people will always say, we've all heard it say, I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. And uh, from, for those who are spiritual, there's, there's a scripture in the Bible that talks about God taking our, our wrongs, our sins, and throwing them to the depths of the sea, you know, and not bringing them back up again, right? And that, that just suggests that he's not trying to keep it at the forefront. And, and, and for practical application for those who are not so spiritual, one of the things we talk about is, is the tip of the tongue syndrome. You know, um, everybody has the ability to forget because oftentimes we have things on the tip of our tongue that we cannot remember. They're typically phrases that we don't use oftentimes or things that we that are not in our habits or re- our repertoire daily. And so typically we tend to forget, even though it may be in our memory bank somewhere. Uh, forgiveness is very similar to that tip of the tongue. Mm. If you if you always bring up the infractions of your spouse, right, it, it's always on your mind. You always remind them that they did this in 2002. You're not going to forget it. If if somehow mm-hmm. you can have the ability to not bring up those infractions all the time, the the more time you get in between bringing it up, it'll be like the it'll be like a word that's on the tip of your tongue. Same mm-hmm. will so so will be that infraction. It will be on the tip of your tongue. And so it's very important to understand that forgetting something comes with practice of not bringing it back up. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Danielle and Howard Taylor. They are the authors of the book, The Fundamentals of Forgiveness. And we're talking about the four factors of forgiveness. Um, You you talk about uh, forgiveness, the first one that we're able to be forgiven, whether that be by a higher power that we've been forgiven by um, someone who we've wronged in the past. And then this idea of forgetting, uh, as in not bringing it back up again. Now, uh, we have sort of been joking that Howard is perfect, but Danielle, you and I, we both know that he's not perfect. How are you able? How are you able to put aside um, those things that he's done wrong in the past? Because they're such a great comeback. It's a great zinger if you bring that up when he does it yet again. It's a he always does this. How do you mm. truly forget? So first is that we don't use always or never or any of those absolutes. So that's number one. And then secondly, I think to myself, like I mentioned earlier, I've offended him. And so let me just go through my process of disappointment or sadness or whatever it is. And then just recommit to the cause. It's like, okay, let's move right along. Let's get going forward. Howard and I are best friends. We enjoy hanging out with each other. So when we kind of like hit an impasse, we don't want to stay there long. Now, let's say it's like something really big, like something that's just like, okay, it's going to take more than a little of this and a little of that to get over it. I think breaking down for us um, has breaking down, I think looking at what has and having an honest, open dialogue on what has caused things to get this way or what is the Mm -hmm. underlying reason behind this particular behavior Mm -hmm. helps me um, look at him from a friend perspective. Like Mm. sometimes you have to come down from the husband and wife perspective because our expectations are really high for a husband and wife. You know what I mean? So when you're starting to deal and delve in like higher forms of offense, you need to be able to come down to realize my spouse is struggling in some type of area, whether it's lying or addictions or pornography or affairs or whatever it is, my spouse is struggling in this area. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm upset and bothered and offended, and not to say there's not going to be additional consequences later, you, you have to come back to how can I fight this with you? Not fight against you, but how can I fight this with you? Do I need to pray for you? Do, I need to, do, we, need, do we need to come up with some boundaries that I can hold you accountable to? Like, I need to look at the bigger picture on helping pull him out of this rather than turning away from him. Like, oh, you hurt me. I hate you. That's it. You know? Mm-hmm. So for us, um, thankfully, we haven't had a, a lot of major, like, offenses like that. But the ones that we've had here and there over the 20 years, that's how we've handled it to get back on the same page is realizing like the person has offended you, but it's not personal. You know what I mean? Like yeah. people don't wake up in the morning. Like I just want to treat myself the worst I possibly can. Yeah. So, yeah. So knowing yeah. that it's like, okay, let me get back to the, the, the real, the realization, I guess on that's not how you feel towards me. People generally have goodwill towards their spouse. 
So what is it that you're dealing with? Let's just uncover it all and have the hard conversation right now so that we can move forward. I always call it the benefit of the doubt moment. Let's let's just, you know, you wouldn't right. assume that this person is out to get you. So let's just remove that very vengeful kind of point of view. Okay, that's off right. the table. So maybe where is this coming from? Uh, my mind right. is obsessing. Howard, what's number three? Fighting for and not against your spouse. You know, oftentimes when you have um, a, an infraction or, or you've been wronged by your spouse, the inclination is it causes an argument or, or, or a fight. Um, but what Dale and I like to oftentimes, and you guys just alluded to it, uh, we have to remind ourselves that our spouses are human and give them the benefit of the doubt that they have goodwill against us. And mm-hmm. so rather mm-hmm. than beating them up, as a matter of fact, in the book, Danielle uses the example that if you were to ever see your friend uh, uh, getting a fight, getting a fight at the gas station or getting beat up at the gas station, you would probably jump in or do something to intervene or help that friend, no matter what they did to whatever, what, what role they caused to bring that fight on. Um, oftentimes in marriage, when forgiveness needs to take place and you need to fight for your marriage, you, you find yourself joining the fight of helping get your spouse back up. Hmm. Um, a lot, many times when people do infractions, those infractions are from maybe sins of the past, uh, traumas of child, child from childhood, things that really don't really have anything to do with their love for their spouse. And so joining the fight to beat them up really doesn't get you anywhere. Rather, fighting to build them up and to bring them back from that sin shows that you truly have an unconditional love for them and that you understand that they're human. I mean, understanding that Danielle and I were human and our relationship really freed us up to be mm-hmm. able to, Dale calls it a safety net, to be able to have a safety catch when we wronged each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so often in marriage, marriage comes with such an expectation of perfection that it doesn't really allow us to honestly, and in a humanistic way, deal with the sins or imperfections of our spouse. And so... Understanding that a human makes sure that you're joining the fight to build them back up and not joining the fight to tear them down. I love the visualization visualization of that idea that you see your friend getting beat up and and you would likely intervene. What is not likely is you wouldn't be like, yeah, whatever, and start beating up your friend as part of that. And and very much when when we fight within our relationships, that is what we're doing. Sure, that's a grandiose example, you know, a a, a not realistic, but but it is a a perspective at looking at it that makes you go, yeah, why would I do that? I wouldn't do that, obviously. Danielle, you get to bring it home with number four. Let's do it. Number four is fortification, fortifying your marriage and strengthening the areas of weaknesses that cause the offense to begin with. We kind of discussed it a little bit, but in a more practical manner, Howard mentioned earlier, I think that, um, well, maybe not, but we, at some point we talked about possibly having affairs or watching pornography or mm-hmm. something like that, that is uh, sidelined, you know, the happiness in the relationship fortifying is to come in and put boundaries in place, you know, helping each other Mm -hmm. stay accountable. So that may look like, you know, at the gym, are you going to continue to go to that gym? Mm. Are we going to go together now? You know, are you going to pick a different time to go so that you don't have to run into that person? Do you need to have a home gym? Like how bad is this getting? You know what I mean? There's certain things that you need to start putting in place and strengthening so that this doesn't happen again. If you had a pornography situation, do you need to lock on the computer, you know, a, child uh what is it called the, the like, a, like um, a security code or yeah, yeah just something yeah. secure yep yeah something secure you know do, do we not need a computer at all do you not need a smartphone do you need a basic phone where you can't ask, access the internet do we go to bed at the same time so that you don't get tempted to do anything while i'm asleep or we sleep or whatever the case is mm-hmm. so coming up with some some boundaries there it helps to fortify and strengthen where the cracks that came in or where the offense had taken place and I think that helps mm-hmm. keep holding someone accountable and making them feel like, okay, I'm on this journey to, you know, regain trust or, you know, love or passion or whatever it is to help this thing move forward. Having accountability and knowing that I'm going to have to answer to somebody and then having these, um, these, these boundaries in place, I think, really, really assists, really helps the relationship, rather, really helps the relationship rebuild so that you can get over whatever the offense is and move on because now it shows the other person that you're truly and honestly from a good, wholesome, honest, authentic place trying to regain their trust, you know, and whatever the, right. the downfall was. 
I guess in parting, the only question that I would ask, and either of you can feel this or both if you would like as, as well, is it possible to, to just not forgive? Can, can, can the offense be so great that it just, when people would say something like, uh, it's too hard for me to forgive or I could never forgive that person, is that a, a real and actualized statement? I think it depends on you. I mean, you can choose not to forgive. I think everyone has the ability to forgive, no matter how big or small the offense is. Mm-hmm. But the forgiveness mm-hmm. is a choice. You know, if you hold on to it, it's going to impact you more than it's going to impact them. The bitterness in your heart, the unforgiveness, the replaying in your mind all of the time about how you've been so wronged. I've seen that in, in one of my parents growing up, and it didn't fare well for them. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like it impacted uh, my father in a way that took over his health in certain things. It took over his livelihood because of some offenses that he's had. And so I, you can hold on to that if you want to, but it, I wouldn't advise it. But we do all have the ability to forgive. Yeah. The four yeah, factors sure. of, of forgiveness, part of a much bigger picture as we talk about the fundamentals of marriage with Danielle and Howard Taylor. Uh, a great uh, an additional conversation. If you have missed any of our previous conversations with them in the past, make sure that you subscribe to The Lisa Show, having them on several times throughout the year as we make our way through their Fundamentals of Marriage, which just happens to be the name of their book as well. You can find it online at marriageondeck.com, as well as find them on any of the social medias, Marriage on Deck. Thanks, you guys, for being with us. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. us. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Okay, Richie, what was the most daring thing you've ever done and what was going through your mind when you did it? Uh, I jumped out of an airplane. You did? Yeah. Um, and I was... Do you remember what you thought about? Yeah, I thought, can I get to the ground? I don't feel very good. Really? That's, yeah, the last time I jumped out of an airplane, I was feeling a little under the weather, but oh, it was dear. it was for a job. Uh, <laughs> and so I was like, all right, let's do this. So I just sort of free fell for a while and got down to the ground and... Slept for 14 hours. I avoid sort of those experiences. Oh, I know. I know. Because I ask. Like, I don't want to swim with sharks no? or jump out of airplanes. No, I okay, don't. Okay, so then what was the what was the last most uh, treacherous thing you did? Giving birth, okay. I think. Uh, listen, okay, you win. You win. Because <laughs> I, I, would, I would never do that for a right, job or would, otherwise. Well, I wouldn't call it a daredevil experience. But today we are going to speak with daredevil Ian Miller, who scales cliffs and sea stacks 100 meters tall, including Knock Namara off the coast of Ireland. But what's even more amazing is that he does it without any equipment, mm, which sounds I'm, terrifying yes. to me. It's called free climbing, and we thought it sounded terrifying, but also really cool. So we invited him on the show to tell us more about how he conquers these daunting heights. Welcome, Ian. Hi. Hi. Okay, so how did you get into climbing, first of all? Oh, I'm of an age now, I've just turned 50, that to get into climbing, you had to go trekking and hill walking for a, few, a wee while to get used to being in the mountains. Hmm. And then you kind of just drifted into using ropes as as your mountain walks got steeper and steeper. Uh, that, that's how I started. Uh, there, was, there wasn't any really climbing walls at that time. Oh, there was. Yeah. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't, yeah, they weren't the same as they are now. They weren't prolific. Uh, they were very much where, where, where men trained for hard climbing as opposed to what they are nowadays. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's through the outdoors is how, how I uh, how I started. So how did you get from you know thinking okay I'll I'll climb these walls and and use rope when I need to to get to where you are today? Well, when I when I started like technical rock climbing, uh-huh. I I really I really wanted to climb the sea stacks in Orkney where I where I'm from and where where I lived at the time. So I just bought a book how to rock climb and bought some stuff in a shop in Inverness and taught myself how to how to climb sea stacks. And I didn't really know, because I was in isolation, that sea stacks, the, the towers that stick out the sea, that mm-hmm. they, they were they were quite unusual to be climbed. Uh, the, the mainstream climbers at the time was like a novelty if they did ever do one. And it was usually the the old man of Hoy that most people did. But I've just I've just focused on sea stacks for the last twenty, thirty years and 
COA out today. Wow. So so you sort of described them, but maybe you can uh, help us paint that picture a little bit more. Are they like monoliths that are in the ocean? What is a, a sea stack exactly? Well, you, you guys are in Utah, uh-huh. and if, uh, you've got hundreds of towers that stick out the desert. Yeah. And th- these towers are, are quite remote. You've got to travel to them. If you were to replace the desert sand with angry white water and the Atlantic Ocean, then that's what we're talking about. Wow. Okay. So how do you mentally prepare to do these really difficult, complex um, climbing feats? Well, a, lo- feats? a lot of the more difficult, a lot of the more difficult sea stacks are, are very much like your desert towers, that they are quite far from any near point. So you've got to get to them first. And knowing how the ocean works, you can wait until the pla- almost until the planets align that you know you can get ca- either kayak, swim, or paddle out in an inflatable dinghy. And getting to them is usually, not, not always, but usually the hardest. You just wait until the, you know you can, good chance. You're not, you're not taking mm-hmm. a risk going in the ocean, but you're certainly minimizing it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a waiting game. So then with it, um, where it would be different from doing this in the desert and doing it in the ocean, is there a little bit more safety should you find yourself falling as you're climbing from the sea stack? Because as we mentioned, you, you do this all without rope, so you're not you know, affixed to the, the, the rock face. Uh. You are just free climbing these things. Uh, is, it, is it safer then to have the ocean underneath you? No, you're going to die just the same. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> <the ocean>. oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just checking. The, the, o- yeah. the, o- the, the ocean around sea stacks. Sea, sea, stack, what, what, sea stacks used to be connected to land, so all all the land that used to be there has all been washed and bashed away by the sea. So in in general, the sea around these uh, towers. It's very shallow because it's full of broken rock from what used to be there. Oh. It's very, very, it's very rare to get deep water around stacks, unless the, unless the certain stacks in Tasmania, the certain stacks in, in northwest of Scotland, in which there's deep water. But that's for different reasons. The, the stacks I'm, I've got are, are quite modern, new stacks in geological terms, so the debris still there. So falling off really, mm. you really wouldn't want to. So then what goes through your mind as you're climbing these? Uh, usually usually it's I'm I'm usually two steps ahead. So before before I leave the house in the morning, I've already ticked off the sea looks good. The forecast for the next twelve hours looks good. It didn't rain too much last night, so the rock should be good. And I've already ticked off what I'm expecting and then as I as I progress to drive down for the exit point to paddle out. And as I'm doing the paddle, I'm a couple of stages ahead. So usually when I'm doing actually doing the climbing mm-hmm. part, I'm already working out how I'm going to get off because I need to, to abseil off and all this sort of thing. So if it's a brand new stack or a brand new line, then I'm going to be taking stuff with me to get off the stack. So as I'm climbing, apart from doing the climbing, mm-hmm. I'm, all, I'm already thinking, okay, I can abseil to here, rig that and abseil to the ground as you're going. So you're, you're never dead-ending yourself, i.e. finding yourself in a position which you can't get out of, which yeah. wouldn't be good. Hmm. No. We're talking with Ian Miller about free climbing, which if people don't know means no ropes, no no equipment other than your hands and, and your feet and maybe the shoes on your feet. Um, to me, this seems like... A, a, Crazy, uh, uh, maybe uh, 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 on some level, um, not a death wish necessarily, but there are risks that you're taking Scary. that you don't necessarily have to. How do you um, lead your life in a way that you can you can do this? Like from um, from sort of that mental come at that at any moment you could go out and do this and and that would be your last climb. If you if you imagine that you're driving your car on any road you choose anywhere in, in the US. Mm-hmm. People are coming at you on the other side of the road and you're overtaking people, people are passing you and there's just generally cars moving about. You can't guarantee that anybody else in the other vehicles aren't 
drinking under, driving under the influence, mm. sending a text, changing the music, fighting with her children, r- really angry after, after having a fight with the wife or husband before they've left the house. And they're not really paying attention to the road. Mm. And they hit you head on randomly, killing mm. everybody in both cars. There's a risk that you can't, pre- you can't prevent that from happening as you drive. Whereas when I'm out rock climbing, mm-hmm. my risk is minimised to a point where it's acceptable. I'm not taking risks. I do take risks, but I don't take wild, hmm. unknown risks. I minimise them to a point where they're acceptable. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's a different way to look at it. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier that, that you do take some things with you on the climbs. What do you take with you? I take, if I go to a new stack, then I can see it through the binoculars. I can see the summit. Ideally, I can see the summit. And I can work out roughly what I think I'm going to need on the climb. So I might take a 60-meter 60, 60 single rope, which I can abseil 30 meters and pull the rope after me. Or I, I might take a 60-meter uh, single rope, and, or half rope because it's lighter. And then I might leave that to, and abseil the full height and I'm taking little bits of gear, little bits of metal and little bits of rope, but just bits that I think I might need to mm. make some sort of anchor point or anchor points so yep. that I can get off. So it, I'm preempting having yeah. climbed, getting off before I start the climb. Have you had any scary near-death experiences? Yeah. I, <laughs> I, 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 ten years ago, I fell off a stack and I fell 60 foot into the sea, but oh. I fell into... I fell into a thing, what I call the pits of hate. And that, that is where two conflicting tides meet at, the, at a, big, a big corner. So as I hit the sea, I didn't mm. actually hit the, Z, the sea that was horizontal. It hit me vertically oh. as I was oh. falling towards it. So I kind of, kind of got washed around in like a, a mini whirlpool where the two tides conflict. And then I popped out as I managed to get pull, pull and rope and kelp uh, under the 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 kelp weed to get out of the, the whirlpool sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a near miss. That was a near miss. Wow. Uh, it, 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 all, it, it ended well, but for yeah. a wee while it didn't, yeah. didn't seem like it was going to be a particularly, a particularly good day. Wow. <laughs> was it hard to go back at it after that particular incident? Did you have to take some time or were you back the next day or a couple of days later? Well, I didn't. I didn't climb the stack that day. I kind of paddled away with my. I kind of thought that that'll that'll do, donkey. That'll do. There's yeah. no point in there. pushing the envelope. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I gave it a couple of days, then I went and did an easier an easier climb just to get back in. Because what actually happened there was I I I, I took a risk that I didn't need to. Hmm. I kind of cut a corner, and I I took a risk to save time, oh. and it backfired. It backfired. So I, I, it was a great lesson to learn that if you're, going to, if you're going to cut corners and take risks, it has to be worth it. And all I was doing was trying to save a bit of time. And that is never a good policy when you are when you don't need to. There's a life lesson in there. I can just, I know it's a oh, metaphor. Absolutely. I know it is. Thank you for coming to his <laughs> TED Talk. I know. Yep. So of all, tell us a little bit more about where you have climbed, the kind of the coolest places, your favorite climbs. I've, I, I predominantly climb on sea stacks and I predominantly climb in the sea. And the, the actual climbing, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm, mm-hmm. it, hasn't merged, it hasn't merged into one big climb. Hmm. But what it is, is a continual sequence of fantastic days out. But the most memorable times have pretty much been with what lives in the sea. Uh, Paddling in a child inflatable dinghy at the base of a thousand foot cliff, totally un- inescapable, yeah. and about seven hundred and fifty meters from your exit point, and a, 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 an orca or killer whale pops up twenty foot from your boat. Wow! They're they're <laughs> they're rare. They're reasonably rare in Irish waters. Yeah. And this was about ten years ago, and that was a moment. That's the moment right where I bought some GoPros and started to carry. Because if I'd, if I'd got that footage on, oh. it would have been it would have done really well. But it was good that it didn't it didn't capture it because it was a moment where I'm seeking that moment again mm. every time I go out. Hmm. Hmm. 
How how different wow. is what you do from like here in the states? We've seen the film Free Solo about the guy climbing El Capitan without any mm-hmm. ropes and that stuff. In uh, is that Yellowstone or Yosemite? How, how well, different is that? Yeah. How different is that? Well, apart from Alex Hall being a world class climber, I, I'm 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 not a world class climber. I'm just. A middle-aged guy having a lot of fun. <laughs> what he, what, what he's doing, or what he did was, apart from doing something that will never be topped in terms of climbing. Other people might climb free solo harder things. Other people have climbed harder things free solo, including himself. But he did something that's so wild, and it was caught by Jimmy Chin so beautifully and perfectly that even my mum, who knows nothing about rock climbing emailed me a while ago to ask me uh, did, did I still climb with ropes? <laughs> Meaning that <laughs> she'd seen the, the free solo film. The, dif- the difference, obviously there's massive differences, but the difference between what Alex is doing and what someone like me is doing is I'm, I'm not climbing incredibly hard rock. I'm climbing really quite, quite easy rock in incredibly hard locations to get to. Hmm. Hmm. Meaning that if you don't if you don't know the sea, the chance of you drowning before you get onto the stack are really quite high. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking for for, for I'm not particularly looking for hard rock climbing. I've done that years and years ago. What I'm looking for is, as you asked a moment ago, I'm looking for that moment where you can't replicate it. Like swimming with swimming with basking sharks, that is a moment which most people will never forget. Mm. Uh, being within twenty foot of an orca, patting a seal or a seal cub underwater, uh, all in, all in the quest to stand on top top of sea stacks. These are moments you can't replicate. Wow, that's what I'm seeking. Okay, so you said that you've gotten an email from your mom, and I just need—I'm kind of on your mom's side. Um, <laughs> what do you, what do most of your friends and family think of you? climbing and and um do, do they cheer you on do they ever come with you or do they say oh you're crazy <laughs> uh, most people that have known me for 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 a long time it's nothing new it's it's like all right okay sometimes when like when i, when I did croknamara i came home and i was sitting in the couch uh my then uh four-year-old, three, three-year-old was sitting watching the footage with me. Mm-hmm. He, he's now seven. He climbs with me now. Uh, we've uh. done a lot of stuff, quite a lot of stuff together. But he, he my, my partner, Quiva, she came in the room and she walked behind the couch in, in the kitchen and she stood in silence for a moment watching the footage. <laughs> and all she said was, was that today? It was at that moment then that I knew what I'd done had been a little bit more than the norm. So <laughs> it was her tone. And we've all, we all know that tone. Oh, I know that here. tone. <laughs> I have been a recipient and, and uh, occasionally the giver of said tone. That moment there was when, when I, I realized that I think, I think it was the first time she'd ever seen footage that I'd yeah. taken from, the, from, the, from, my, from my head cam. <laughs> it wasn't spoken about for about a month. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. It's a lot to take in. <laughs> but something that that people definitely should take the opportunity to, to see some of the places that you uh, have climbed. We've been checking it out on Instagram and Twitter. You can find it at so beautiful unique. Ascent, that's A-S-C-E-N-T. Ian Miller, a rock climber and guidebook author, working and playing on the sea cliffs and mountain ranges of uninhabited islands of Ireland. Thank you so much for being with us. And you can check out also his website, uniqueascent.ie. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. listening to the lisa show we all have weak spots some people start to see their weaknesses as just being helpless where is that tipping point helpless personalities see themselves as inept in comparison to everybody else and there's varying degrees of what it means to be helpless 
you might have a different definition than someone else, even close to you. And the causes can be quite similar, though. But the good news is, is there is a fix to this problem of feeling helpless or having a helpless personality. And today we're talking with Dr. Adams, who's a psychiatrist and author who knows how to deal with this kind of personality. Welcome, Dr. Adams. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, so what is it specifically what you call a helpless personality? Well, a helpless personality is a person that feels very inept to cope with daily life. Uh, They whine, complain a lot. Um, They back away when asked to participate and assume responsibility, uh, especially toward other people. Um, They really believe and think and act like they're inert and helpless Mm -hmm. and inept. And they cannot be relied upon to carry through with things. And the only thing they're not helpless about is demanding other people that they cater to them and that they have their way. Um, They um, bank on other people to uh, do things for them constantly, take care of things that they feel helpless about. So they really believe they're deficient in toughness and ability, and uh, they are unsure in a lot of situations and lack stamina. But like I say, they're very good at screaming for others to help them or demanding. I think that a lot of people can say, oh, yeah, I work with somebody like that, or or there's somebody like that in my family, or, you know, that everybody kind of thinks, well, they just complain and maybe haven't paused to think, oh, yeah, they are inept in coping with daily life and maybe not take it that far. You know, we have them in our families and in our workmates. They're just everywhere. how, How does one get into a helpless personality like this? How does that happen? Well, my colleague, Homer Martin, and I researched this for like 80 years, 40 for him and 40 for me, and we discovered that they're raised in a distinct way from people with other types of personalities. And their child-rearing comes from their parents, what we call emotional conditioning of them. And emotional conditioning, we, dis- we discovered that people raise their kids like they train their dogs. So you give your dog a treat and you give them praise and positive feedback whenever they beg or catch a Frisbee or do Uh something. And we do the same thing with our children starting when they're born. We emotionally condition them with our emotions and the way we emotionally interact with them. So it's not just what they say. Parents can say one thing, but give a completely different emotional message. Okay. So um, this is how emotional conditioning works. And it starts early in life when you're born. And within the first three years of life, your personality gets conditioned and set along hmm. a certain pathway. And um, these kids are catered to a great deal. They have very low expectations for being independent and for solving their own problems. Um, the least little desire or impulse that they have is constantly gratified by other people. So they're never thwarted. They're never allowed to figure out what to do when they can't have something right away. Hmm. And they um, uh, have problems as they grow up, assuming responsibility for themselves and other people, And other people learn to have very few expectations of them. They let them have a pass. They let them slide. And as a result, a lot of these kids and adults grow up with sort of unserious attitudes about things. They're very frivolous, very carefree, life-of-the-party kind of people. And they can have very changeable, capricious styles of uh, thinking that are, you know, A, one minute, Z, the next. Now, Dr. Adams, what you've created, though, in the mind of a lot of parents, knowing that it happens in the first three years of their life, is a (laughs) A tremendous amount of (laughs) panic, anxiety, paranoia. Mm. So how how can we sort of check ourselves before we wreck our children? Well, this is is why we talk about these things, and this is why I'm sharing this information. Um, What you can do is try and be introspective and observe yourself Um, closely and how you interact with your children. And typically you can do this 
by comparing your children because what we discovered is that parents condition, emotionally condition their children, each child differently and frequently oppositely within the same family. So if the first child is conditioned to be very, very strong and capable and given a lot of responsibility and not catered to very much, and then the second child will be a helpless personality, catered to a great deal, just as I've described. Mm. So one of the things you can do is just really take a hard look at, wow, I'm raising these children differently. I expect the moon of this one. I expect nothing of this one. And then you can try and modulate that. You can help your helpless child assume a stronger role, give them tasks to do, expect things out of them, expect them to follow through. When they don't leave the responsibility with them to figure out the problem or figure out the issue, yeah, they're going to scream and cry and carry on because they're used to somebody else doing it for them. But that's all right. Frustrate them. Let them go ahead and figure it out themselves. And eventually what they come to realize, these kids, is that, and adults, they're a lot more capable than they believe they are and then they act or feel like they are. Um, And I think it's important as these people grow up to realize the role your parents taught you The way they conditioned you is not who you are or who you can be. It's just a conditioned role the same way your dog is going to come running when you yell treat or when you tell him to beg. So teach your child that instead of asking for support or demanding it, and as adults, you need to assess realistically, well, what things can I really do for myself? I may get terribly anxious with thinking about the things I can do. But this is just a feeling of anxiety. This is not the true measure of your abilities. You can do far more than you think or feel you can. Dr. Christine Adams is a psychiatrist talking to us about dealing with a helpless personality, specifically how to identify it in our children, um, but what about in ourselves? If we notice that we are personally struggling with sort of a helpless personality on any sort of level, how can we undo that damage? Yeah, I think the same ways that parents can help their children, adults can do it, but you have to be introspective. You have to take a long, hard look at yourself. And for many people, this requires getting in touch with a therapist to help them look at themselves. You know, a lot of helpless people think that they're just fantastic, they're the Lord's gift to the world, and they have no problems, and they have no issues, Mm -hmm. but lo and behold, everybody around them is miserable because of the way they interact. So you really have to take a hard, long look at yourself and say, do I have to be so weak all the time? Can I really engage more? Can I follow through more? Can I do, do things for other people, which helpless people are really good at not doing? Um, can I step up and make a promise to somebody and actually follow through? Mm-hmm. Um, and I often have patients tell me, yeah. I can't do this. I feel like I'm hitting a brick wall. Sure. I, ju- I just can't help my mom out. I know she's ill and elderly, but I can't help her out. It's a false brick wall. Really, you can. You just have to exert. First, you have to know it exists, what your problem is, and then you have to try really hard to be stronger. Yeah. How does that conversation sort of change, though, when it's a friend that, you know, who's struggling with this? It seems like they're asking too much of us or more than we can do. How do. How do you even have that conversation with them? Well, I would start by saying, you know, I've observed that there's many situations that you feel you can't cope with, that I, for example, cope with well, uh, your sibling copes with well, the other co-worker does it well, and I'm wondering if um, what you need to do is you need to tackle this problem, and since I work with you, if it's a worker relationship, what I will do if you're in agreement, 
is I will not do as many things for you that are unreasonable that you want me to do at work. I will leave these things to you and let you figure out how to do them so that you can grow stronger. I love Which that. Which is in essence yeah. what, what a parent is doing with a child. And it's expressing confidence. Yeah, and it's saying, you know, you must have been raised in a very helpless role in families. Many people are, but you can overcome it just as other people have overcome it. And if you feel you need some professional therapy help, then by all means get that. But let's just try this with one another. And I'm going to back off and say more no to you more often. (laughs) Heads up. And, um, (laughs) yeah. And uh, let's see how it goes for a while. Dr. Adams, when we visit with folks about their their area of study or their specialty, we find that often it's something that they, as the individuals who studied that, have have had uh, impact their lives. Is this something that you studied because you were curious about or because this helpless uh, personality impacted you somehow? Well, that's a really good question. I met Dr. Martin. He was my mentor, and I met him when I was in training as a psychiatrist. And he started showing me and talking with me and asking me, what are you observing in children? Because he was an adult psychiatrist. He says, here's the things that I'm observing in adults. What are you seeing in kids? So it made my mind start working. It made my observation powers gear up. And I started watching kids and watching how they interacted with parents. And he taught me a lot of the things that he was learning about working with people in his practice. And I thought it was so helpful. It helped so many parents turn around the way they dealt with their children. It helped so many children that I worked with get better and have confidence and self-esteem and be able to tackle things that they would have cried about or cringed from before. So it was through his teaching, which was just serendipity, that Mm -hmm. I met him, Mm -hmm. but it became very applicable and useful to me in my work with kids and families and also with adults because I also see adult patients. When, When we talk about this helpless personality, is it a hopeless situation that people can't find themselves out of, or do you truly believe that people can find themselves uh, no longer being helpless? Yes, I wouldn't have been in this business for 40 years if I thought that it was a failure. Um, It's been very successful. There is hope. There is a way out of this because it's just your conditioning. It's Mm -hmm. just your conditioned role like your puppy dog. (laughs) It's not who you are. And I often have patients tell me, you know, I've been going around like a horse with blinders on, thinking that the world was just what I could see or just how I reacted to people. And through psychotherapy, I've learned there's a whole other way of relating to people. I don't have to be so doggone helpless and inert all the time. I can pitch in and help. I can make suggestions. I can do my own laundry. I can keep my apartment clean. Um, I don't have to have somebody go to the grocery store for me. I can buy my groceries. So um, I think we used to think that with personality problems, treatment was very arduous and very unsuccessful if it, you know, if we worked, even if we worked a long time. But Dr. Martin and I discovered that the personality can be changed, and we discovered that knowing about emotional conditioning really helps our patients when we help them learn about their own conditioning. I really appreciate you speaking that hope into that place for people who who, who may, in fact, feel hopeless. We've been visiting with Dr. Christine Adams. Uh, That's her website. You can go to drchristineadams.com. Be sure that you spell out doctor. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about her life's work, uh, you can read her book. It's called Living on Automatic, How Emotional Conditioning Shapes Our Lives and Relationships. And you can find that anywhere you get books. Uh, Dr. Adams, thanks for being on the show with us. Uh, Lisa, uh, as an esteemed actress as oh, you wow. are, uh, you know, the, the opportunity that two actors have to be able to play in the same sandbox on a radio show, unique perhaps, but that's what people that listen to the Lisa show are experiencing. I am curious to you, <laughs> or from you rather, mm-hmm. I would like to know, uh, 
your first role that you ever played in a show ever. Now, it can be that your first like acting oh, gig was a commercial. Okay. It can be it like can be paid? it can be the yeah, uh no, no. We're oh, not going to go paid. I okay. I want, I want uh, the the young the young Lisa Valentine Clark story. Uh that first opportunity where you stepped out on the stage and you went, "Oh, Oh, there is something about this experience that speaks to my soul. Ninth grade. Okay, that's a, that's a little late. I'm in. Uh, I mean, I've had like you know where you do stage readings. I I always liked to raise my hand and volunteer to speak in class. Sure, I liked that. Oh so, no, I'm you know, sure. We did I'm a sure lot you were class, that girl in class. Yeah, presentations for things like that. But in ninth grade, I was in a drama class and mm-hmm. got cast as the the lead in the play Up the Down Staircase mm. about a struggling new teacher. And I took it very seriously. Were you I was, the teacher? Yes. And I was very <laughs> nervous That's what that is. about messing up my lines. Mm-hmm. So I had these note cards that I would put on my desk and things that would just give me the prompt mm-hmm. for the next line. Someone in my class saw it and made fun of me. Oh, and so I you, was like, so, wait, so you had it like actually on stage with you? Yes, because I was so nervous. What if I blank? What I mean, I practiced yeah, and I yeah. had everything memorized, but I had the majority of the lines and I just thought I just need to make sure yeah. that it is the right one. Because if I don't, it's all on me. And that just was paralyzing. So I thought I'll just give the cue at different places and I'll know in the corner of this, that's for this scene or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have to look at them, but I had them just in case because I knew that they were there. Yeah, a little bit. I was very up. nervous. It was a good experience, although we performed for the whole school mm-hmm. and we were doing the play. I'll never forget this moment. Mm-hmm. I was so nervous and we were doing it. Family and all I there, of course. I feel like, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I feel like everything was going well and the play was so great, but it was an assembly. Mm. The bell rang. to dismiss everyone the play wasn't over and what did a bunch of junior high students do uh excuse me what did a bunch of pavlovian junior high school (laughs) students do they all got up started talking and left and the play wasn't over Mm. and i was still talking i was like guys i had this panic like (laughs) the play isn't over like did i do something wrong like in that moment like should did it take longer than we had thought what what happened and i just kind of looked to the side at my teacher who was a little bit more experienced than I was in matters of teaching junior high students and acting Mm -hmm. just kind of like keep going and I kind of kept going but boy the steam was let out (laughs) the air let out of my tire I was it was very we finished and everyone's like oh yeah good job good job okay bye and everybody left and I was super embarrassed and I just thought oh acting not glamorous. <laughs> Got it. Check. I had no idea at that moment the parallel that that situation would run with my life where it's like, Like, yes. if you like doing it, enjoy yeah. the process mm-hmm. because you can't control the outcome or how other people interpret it. 